everyone. Welcome to the Afghanistan Project, where we'll be delving into some of the most pressing concerns facing the people of Afghanistan, highlighting individuals from around the world and across the political spectrum who have stepped up to render assistance to our Afghan allies and raising the voices of the many people who have been endangered by the Taliban's oppressive rule. I'm Beth Bailey here with my co-host Michael Cook, and we're thrilled to introduce our very first guest, Jeff Faniff the director of advocacy for the nonprofit organization, No One Left Behind. Jeff was commissioned into the US Marine Corps as an infantry officer in 2013. And after six years of active and reserve duty, Jeff left the Marine Corps in 2019 and achieved his master of public administration at Princeton University just prior to the US withdrawal from Afghanistan in August, 2021. During the US withdrawal, Jeff worked with friends from the Marine Corps to evacuate several hundred Afghan allies from Hamid Karzai International Airport. And after the withdrawal, Jeff started working on his MBA at Stanford University, but after six months of juggling coursework and his continued involvement in Afghanistan efforts, he took a leave of absence and began his current position at No One Left Behind, where he advocates for our allies who are attempting to utilize the beleaguered special immigrant visa program. Jeff is also a host of the Irregular Warfare Initiative podcast, and we are so excited to have you here with us today, Jeff, to talk about the work that No One Left Behind has done and continues to do for our allies. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be here. Well, I want to jump right into No One Left Behind and when you guys got off the ground and what the original mandate was for the organization when it came to assisting our SIV applicants. Sure. Um, so No One Left Behind is the longest standing nonprofit dedicated to the interpreters and other allies from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were founded in 2014 by an army officer and the Afghan interpreter who saved his life in combat. Uh, pretty remarkable story. Um, and when Janice Shinwari, who was the interpreter, got here to the U.S., um, you know, friends and family and the veterans that he had served alongside raised a ton of money to try to help him get settled because they realized that for folks who just arrived here on the special immigrant visa program, there's very limited support. Uh, and that continues to this day. You still get about three months of resettlement assistance and then you're on your own to start a new life, a new career in a country that is completely foreign to you. And so our original mandate was to try to take some of those funds that have been raised to help Janice and instead spread that around to help other families. And you know, no one left behind has continued to uh, to work in the resettlement space in bridging that gap between where the official government resettlement assistance ends and what people need to really get their lives started. Um, but I think, you know, as we've seen over the course of time, that mission has had to expand. Um, and we do three key things today. One is that resettlement assistance where we give out um, grants and loans and other forms of assistance to help people get on their feet when they make it to the U.S. and start to get settled here. Uh, we also do um, evacuation work where we're helping people get out of Afghanistan and make their way to the U.S. We do that in a few different ways. Um, and then finally, and this is a long-standing tradition that no one left behind, is we do government advocacy because we've realized that uh, a nonprofit alone cannot bridge the gap between what these folks need and what what you know the government is currently delivering on. And they need a voice on Capitol Hill and in the offices of many many members of Congress and in the administration who's advocating on their behalf. And so that's the main focus of my work is that advocacy piece where we focus on uh, seeking governmental change for um, both the laws surrounding the SIV program, but also the way that uh, these people are treated when they get here um, so that the government does its job and really takes care of the folks who took care of American troops in combat. Nice, that makes a lot of sense. So how did you actually get involved with them in the first place and what are you specifically working on right now? 
Sure, it's a it's a good question, and you know I did not plan to be in the you know Afghanistan evacuation space like many of us who got involved uh, during the fall of Afghanistan. I was uh, a grad student at Princeton um, studying public policy. I was actually in a class one of my last semesters there with Ambassador Ryan Crocker, who was the ambassador to Iraq and Afghanistan. And in that class, we watched the peace negotiations in Doha very closely and with a lot of concern. Um, and you know we sort of watched things start to devolve in Afghanistan. Um, Last August, uh, right around the time that Afghanistan was falling, a friend of mine called me from the ground at HKIO. And he said to me, hey, Jeff, th things are far worse here than you could possibly imagine. Um, if you have people who need to get out, if you know, if you have friends who need to get their people out, you need to let me know as soon as possible. And you know, here are the six or so pieces of information that I would need to get someone in the gate. Um, you know, I was at one of my, my best friend's weddings at the time. And so, you know, while we're suiting up and getting on our, you know, um, are, you know, everything ready for the wedding. Uh, I was on my phone at the same time calling folks that I knew who were, you know, had served in Afghanistan um, and sort of working ways to get people out. And like so many of us, it became incredibly clear that the situation on the ground was something that we had never experienced before. I, you know, a few days into this, got a call from a colonel at the Pentagon who was asking me for my help. And I was, you know, a washed up Marine Corps captain who was, you know, finishing up grad school at the time uh, and certainly not expecting a call from someone in that position asking me for help on an ongoing non-combatant evacuation. Um, but the reality was that things were so chaotic and had devolved to such a state of you know, utter mayhem that having the phone number of the guy at the gate was more valuable than being able to call the commanding general. Um, and, and that's what I found over the course of those last two weeks in August. So that's how I initially got involved. And uh, you know, as Beth mentioned, started up uh, my MBA program and I'd find myself sitting in accounting class and getting texts from somebody whose safe house just got rolled by the Taliban or who were on the run or who needed my help. And it's really hard to stay focused on, on grad school when you've got people's lives potentially in your hands and a decision you might make over text message could be the difference uh, between life and death for someone. And so after about six months of grad school, realized that I needed to focus on this full time for at least uh, you know, a, certain amount of, uh, a certain amount of time. And, ended up taking a leave of absence and going to No One Left Behind, where I was hired to be Director of Advocacy. Wow. That's a uh, definitely an interesting time to get involved in Afghanistan that uh, week in August, uh, yeah. as the airport's falling and the city's falling and the Taliban's uh, taking over Kabul. So can you tell us a little bit about like how you had luck uh, getting people into the gate um, at HKIA? Sure, and I'll say I, I, I hold the Marines of 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines in the, the highest possible regard. Um, I knew uh, Captain Andres Rodriguez, who was a good friend of mine. We trained together at the infantry officer course. Um, at one point during a training operation, we tried to steal a seven ton together. Uh, so he was somebody who was used to operating in sort of the gray area in terms of getting things done and trying to, you know, make things happen. And when I realized he was on the ground with the with his Marines from 2-1, um, we got in touch. We're texting back and forth. Uh, first, I wanted just to check in that my friend was doing okay but then realized that he and his Marines were able to do incredible things. And so, you know, as, as word got out that, uh, that if you, you know, reached out to this phone number that was mine, that I had a direct line to the guy at the gate, my phone started ringing off the hook and it did so for most of the last two weeks of August. Um, and the way it would work is, you know, he had sort of information requirements he needed. And if I could get those for a, a group of people, I would pass them to him. And then, you know, when able, he and his Marines would go to the gate or go outside the gate often, getting into that canal outside of Abbey Gate that a lot of us are very familiar with and, and pulling people in. One story in particular really uh, stuck with me. There was 
a group of 37 teenage girls. They were skateboarders with an organization called Skatistan, which is funded by the Tony Hawk Foundation. Um, and they and their families were in desperate need to get out because they had been in documentaries and news articles and they were sort of very public facing is part of an organization that used skateboarding to empower teenage girls to be leaders in their community. This is something that the Taliban would have absolutely no taste for. And so um, over the course of probably three days, we worked to get them to the airport, get them through the incredible crowds and the crush of humanity at Abbey Gate and eventually up to the Marines there where Andres and his, his Marines were able to get down bring them in the gate and their most prominent visa, their best chance out was an Australian humanitarian visa. So that's what we tried first. And he brought them to the Australian military. Um, and we were, you know, cheering and excited and people were crying. And we'd finally, after at that point, about 30 hours of trying to get them out, got them in the gate. And the Australian military ended up turning them away because at the time they were under orders to only accept folks with Australian passports. So this promise of a humanitarian visa wasn't good enough. And so after all of this and how, what we thought was a moment of triumph, they were turned around and sent back out. Um, but I'll give credit to Andres and his Marines on the ground. By that point, they felt really committed to this case. So the next day, he went and talked with the State Department there and said, hey, these folks are, you know, P1 or P2 eligible. We can make a case for a humanitarian you know, refugee visa. Like, let, let's find a way and got the approval to bring them back in on an American visa. So we had to reach back out to them, you know, in safe houses across Kabul. They all got back together and made their way back to Abbey Gate. Um, at this point, we're just a few hours before the suicide bombing blast. Um, so, you know, we're, his Marines were given orders to close the gate or not go out into the crowd. Then that order was rescinded. He was eventually able to go back out, jump into that canal full of sewage and filth um, and find them holding a red umbrella to get his attention and bring them in to safety. Um, and so, you know, this was the first time I took a minute to actually like take a breath and, and recognize what we had been working on at this point for, you know, approaching two weeks um, when he got them in, got them onto aircraft and, and through the gate. And it was the first time I slept. I remember it in part because it was the first time I slept for more than 20 or so minutes uh, since this had begun. Um, and when I woke up three or so hours later on CNN, there was news of the, the bomber at Abbey Gate. Um, so that first hour or so before I heard from him was pretty uh, hard for me to, to go through, uh, experiencing that I had just asked my friend and his Marines to go outside exactly where that blast occurred and having no idea what had happened. Um, you know, and, and thankfully Andres was okay. He had a Marine badly wounded. Uh, my other friend, Jeff Ball with Ghost Company 2-1, uh, lost nine Marines KIA. Um, so it was a pretty hard moment for all of us where we realized, one, just how devastating this hall was. But I think, two, what really has stuck with me is that those Marines made that sacrifice knowing they were in danger, knowing what they were up against, and made the choice to save human lives as long as they possibly could. And for me, that's, that's part of what motivates me to continue this work is to honor their sacrifice and honor what they stood for there um, and to continue that work even long after the U.S. military left uh, the airport there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those, those Marines from 2-1 are just utter heroes, and I'm, I'm lucky to call a few of them my friends now. And, um, you know, they were the ones that pulled my Afghan friends out from Abbey Gate and saved their lives and their families' lives. And I'm lucky enough to have them living down the road for me now, uh, just thanks to those guys from 2-1. So just, you know, utter heroes. It seems like a, a kind of a common theme when I talked to people that worked at Abbey Gate was, you know, different requirements coming down from the State Department as to, you know, what documents were allowed to come in the gate. Did you run into any issues like that? 
Absolutely. I think, I mean, even when we talk about the girls from the Skatistan Foundation, when they first, the reason they were first handed over to the Australians was because they, they didn't have an SIV, um, but even though they might be P1, P2 eligible. And, uh, you know, in the course of those hours when they went back to their safe houses and when we were able to bring them back in, those requirements changed, which thankfully in that moment was what allowed them to come here and, and to get onto aircraft. Um, because with, you know, the situation they were in, they didn't have a whole lot of options and we all knew the time was ticking. So, you know, it does sound like, uh, you know, and I say this from the perspective of not having been on the ground but having a lot of friends who were there, that those requirements were constantly changing as the, you know, the folks who were on the ground had to make decisions based on limited information and, and a, a mixed set of commands from higher. And I think, you know, that's part of why it was so chaotic. Um, so that's, you know, definitely something that I experienced, not just with that case, but with several others. Yeah. And how did you have luck getting people manifested on flights? Were you working with any NGOs or were they all just getting out on military flights? Well, like I mentioned, I wasn't, I didn't get into this already attached to an NGO. And so um, found myself uh, working with lots of different groups because I had that direct connection to the Marines who were there. Um, and so that put me in a position, you know, after helping others get people out to then say, hey, do you have a plane on the deck right now? Do you have a plane that's waiting? And so, you know, some of them, some of the folks I, I got directly onto military flights, some of them got onto um, other private flights uh, through this incredible ad hoc and informal network of folks who just stepped up to help. Um, and I think that's one of the, the silver linings of those last two weeks of August of 2021 is just how many people were willing to drop everything and just figure it out with no infrastructure in place, uh, no plan in place. You know, I didn't have somebody on speed dial who was the plane person. Uh, it was just working through this group of people that had come together and really stood up to, to help that out. And, you know, I worked alongside folks from the Truman National Security Project and a host of other NGOs who were all trying to do the same thing. And, you know, in retrospect, it's, it's incredible that that group stood up. I wish we had all known each other in advance because we probably would have been even more effective. Um, and I've met so many people who, you know, we never communicated during those last two weeks of August, but but who we were doing the same thing, just a phone call away. So um, that's really how it worked out for me. Yeah, I mean, that's how this podcast came together is just making connections of people just trying to help Afghans. So, uh, you know, it's it's incredible of, you know, the different backgrounds of everyone that kind of joined this digital Dunkirk network. Uh, just a bunch of people that, you know, not necessarily were in the military or currently serving, but just wanted to help. So it was awesome. Absolutely. How have things changed now with uh, evacuating SIV candidates? Are, are you still involved in that at all through No One Left Behind or how is that working? Yes, absolutely. So um, our evacuation team works really closely with the State Department and also on our own to try and increase evacuation throughput. I mean, right now, up until the World Cup, which ceased all flights from Afghanistan to Doha where SIVs were being processed, the government was flying out about 150 to 300 people per week. From my perspective, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the huge number of Afghan SIV eligible people who are still waiting. Um, and we hear from them every day. There isn't a day that's gone by since then where I haven't had someone reach out asking for help. And often people who fought alongside the US military who made incredible sacrifices for us there, who have a legislative promise in the special immigrant visa program and who are stuck waiting either because the bureaucratic processing takes forever um, far longer than it's legislatively required to, which I think is an important point to make sure people understand. Uh, or they've finished, almost entirely finished their process, they're interview ready, uh, but they don't have a way to get to a place where they can actually be interviewed. And so they're waiting for this incredibly tiny bottleneck of flights to get out. 
So one of the things we've done at No One Left Behind is um, initiate what we're calling Operation Save a Life, where we're helping people who are um, at the very, very end of their SIV process, who are ready to walk into an embassy, do their interview, complete their medical, and then, and then get their visa. And we're helping them get to Pakistan, and there we're housing and feeding them, or working with the State Department to house and feed them, and then enable them to finish that out and get their visa come to the U.S. And so our initial our initial cohort was 64 families. Um, we've got our first three made it to the U.S. this past week, and we've got about, um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but 20 some odd families who have made it to Pakistan as well. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to find ways, really pushing against the very, very slow momentum of the bureaucracy to increase the abilities for people to get out and get the safety. And I think I'm often, it, it, when we work with the State Department, we work with others, it's important to acknowledge the urgency of the situation. Um, we had an SIV applicant who was on the top of our list. He was on our next manifest for flights, uh, who was killed by the Taliban just a few months ago. Um, this is somebody who, if we had had another month of breathing room, or if we had been one month quicker, would have made it to safety. And he was pulled out in front of his family and murdered by the Taliban. Um, in the past couple of weeks, we've done a survey of folks who are in Afghanistan who are on our rosters just to say, do you know anyone who's waited, who's waiting for their SIV? who has been killed by the Taliban or subjected to other brutality. And we've documented over 300 cases of people who have been murdered while waiting for their special immigrant visa. So when we hear replies from government like, hey, we're working on it, I, very much we appreciate that. But the urgency needs to be there to acknowledge that a failure to move this along as quickly as it should be moving means life and death for people. It's not you know, an inconvenience for folks waiting for a visa somewhere to go on holiday. It's life and death for people who served alongside US troops in combat. That's absolutely true. And I, I hear from those people every day, too, and it breaks my heart. People who are at the very end of the process and terrified as the Taliban continue to uh, predate upon the Afghan populace and just tighten the uh, rulings. I wondered, there are so many different estimates floating around about the number of SIV applicants who are still in Afghanistan, unable to leave, or, or Afghanistan and Pakistan both. How many do, does No One Left Behind believe are in Afghanistan alone? And can you talk a little bit more about the kinds of difficulties that they're facing? Obviously, Taliban reprisal is a huge one among them, but they have other difficulties too with employment and things of that nature. Um, and then obviously you just mentioned their SIV status is a difficulty that they're facing too. So, sure. yeah. yeah, I mean, we estimate something on the order of 200,000 uh, SIV eligible Afghans are still left behind. Um, now that is accounting for the principal applicant as well as their spouse and children who are eligible to come with them on the visa. Um, and it's a hard number to nail down exactly. In May, the State Department released the number of 160,000 was their estimate as of then. Um, but then we saw, you know, few updated estimates of the number of applications in the pipeline, which last I've heard was something on the order of 100,000. Um, and if you so take 100,000 principal applicants, look at an acceptance rate of about 50%, and then multiply that by, you know, the 4.5 people per family on average applying for an SIV, we're on the order of 200,000 people who are left behind, eligible to come here, and just waiting for the bureaucracy to churn out a piece of paper that says they can come to America. Um, if, in my mind, we need to do better than that um, this far after the U.S. troop withdrawal. Uh, because that's that's a large number of people, but it's also not so large a number that we can't figure that out. I mean, the U.S. moved almost 200,000 people during the NEO um, to to let these folks out who are SIV qualified at a trickle of 150 to 300 people per week. That's unconscionable to me, and I think we need to do better. 
Can you talk about the history of the SIV program uh, and kind of like the minimum requirements to actually be accepted? Sure. So, you know, right now for the SIV program, which has evolved over the years, um, but you need to do 12 months of uh, faithful and valuable service as the as the legislation states to the U.S. government in Iraq or Afghanistan. And the Iraq program has mainly been sunset, although the 1059 program still exists that allocates 50 visas per year. But specific to Afghanistan, um, the SIV program, if you complete that year of service, uh, then you should be SIV eligible. Now, it's not that simple because you then have to prove with employment records that you did that work. You need an HR letter. You need a supervisor's recommendation. Um, and for folks who worked 10 or 20 years ago for the U.S. government, those letters can often be hard to come by. I don't, I don't have employment records from the job I was doing 10 years ago, and I'm sure most folks don't. Um, but we expect people to be able to pr produce documentation or reach back to an employer who may not even be alive anymore and prove that they work for the U.S. government because the DOD didn't keep these records. You know, this is something that we're pushing for, and we work, you know, with several congressional offices. I know Congressman Crow has been pushing for this as well, is requiring the DOD, if we hire foreign nationals in a combat zone, to keep a record of their employment. It should be fairly straightforward. Um, and this is something that was in the NDAA this past year from the House markup, but then was stripped of it in conference by the Senate. Now, they're, you know, the Congress is still working on this, and we're hoping for a good outcome. But the reality is this should have been, this should have been done decades ago that if you're hiring somebody in a combat zone to work for you, while there's a legislative program on the books to give them a visa, the US government should hold those records and they don't. And so that's one of the real challenges that a lot of people face. Um, another one we've seen is that that 12 month requirement is a hard legislative requirement. So if you work as an interpreter for 11 months and then you're, hurt, you're injured in an IED strike, you lose your eligibility if you're not able to keep, keep walking for the next, you know, whatever amount you need to finish out those 12 months. And that's a piece of legislation that we went to Congress with and we asked for. And it was passed by the House Armed Services Committee in, in their markup of the NDAA with bipartisan support. It was introduced by Congressman Moulton, but four Republican members of Congress spoke in favor. Um, and for whatever reason, once again, it was stripped out of the NDAA uh, by the Senate, uh, which stripped basically every SIV related provision out. Um, it's astonishing to me that this happens while we're still dealing with this incredible crisis of 200,000 of our allies left behind. Um, but that's sort of how it played out. And those are just two of the sort of many fixes that I think we need to the SIV program. Mm -hmm. And let's say that someone does have all the required documents and they did the proper time of service. How long should it take and how long has it been taking for them to get SIV approval? So the legislative requirement is that the government processing time for an SIV is nine months or shorter. We haven't met that as long as I've been in this line of work. Um, right now, according to the most recent State Department quarterly report, it was something on the order of 589 days that was that on average. Now, this doesn't account for the time it takes for someone who is a native Dari or Pashto speaker to actually fill out paperwork in English. It doesn't account for time where you need to maybe engage an immigration attorney to advise you on your application. That's just the government processing time is 589 days. That's almost twice the nine month requirement that uh, that it, Congress mandated that the State Department and DHS and the other agencies who play a role in finishing an SIV um, are, are currently at. And not only that, but recently the State Department Inspector General released a report saying that they don't even trust the State Department's own numbers. So this is the State Department's own Inspector General stating that those numbers might not even be accurate because of poor record keeping on behalf of the State Department. Um, you know, the um, 
so IRAP, which is an organization that does legal services on behalf of refugees, uh, is actually currently suing the State Department and recently won an injunction uh, to continue to force the government to actually improve their processing times. And when it comes to the point where we have to, you know, where advocates for our, our combat allies have to sue the government and the government is pushing back against that lawsuit just to meet the letter of the law, I think that's just a massive disappointment uh, from our perspective. And we need the government to do better and stop avoiding their responsibilities here and instead be proactive in trying to fix the problem. Sure. I have a, uh, a Afghan friend who lives here named Abdul. Um, he got out in August of 2021 out of Ashkaya and he still doesn't even have a case number. So it's just mind boggling uh, how long this process is taking, you know. It's astonishing. It really is. And and not to mention all the people who get rejected for spacious reasons. I mean, I heard a case recently of an interpreter whose paperwork clearly said he had worked for 18, 20 months, um, but was handed a rejection letter saying you can no longer appeal. You've been rejected. You did not meet the service requirement. I mean, that's a, a clerical error, but that clerical error has ramifications in people's lives. Um, and, and that happens far more often than I'd like to admit. Absolutely. I'd love to go back to you were talking about uh, No One Left Behind's efforts to advocate for the interpreters who were wounded while serving beside us who have something like 10, 11 months in service, but now are uh, very deeply scarred by that service. Can you tell us maybe some of their stories or, you know, how many interpreters have you worked with who are in that position right now? Are we talking hundreds? Are we talking thousands? You know, how hard would it be if the U.S. wanted to expand that to those people who did uh, suffer greatly while working with us? Well, you know, in terms of how hard it would be, it would require Congress to do their jobs and do it effectively, which sometimes is harder than we'd like to admit. Um, but for that number, it's, it's a fairly small number. Um, but there are people, and we have records of these folks, uh, who fought in combat, were wounded often in, you know, on a patrol with Marines or, you know, on a raid with Army soldiers uh, and who, because of that wounding, were unable to complete those 12-month requirement of service. Now, all it would take is Congress to say, hey, we want to fix this. We recognize the law was written that way for a reason, but we didn't acknowledge or we didn't realize that there might be people who have done more for this country than most Americans, have sacrificed more for this country than most Americans, but they're ineligible because of that service, because they lost their legs or because they were shot. Um, and so we went to Congress and we looked at this as sort of one of the easier fixes, something that's just basic common sense. And I'll tell you that both sides of the aisle in the House Armed Services Committee understood that. And it's something that wouldn't require any sort of increase in cost for the visa program. Uh, it would just change eligibility requirements for people who could document, hey, I was wounded fighting with the U.S. And, you know, the House Armed Services Committee said this makes total sense. Um, I think only one person voted against it uh, out of the entire committee. And then it went on to the Senate. And unfortunately, in the Senate process to finalize the bill, they pulled it out. And so this is something that we're going to continue to pursue in the next Congress. That will be incredible. What other initiatives do you have underway to try to move things forward? I saw that in the most recent spending bill, there were provisions for the SIV program, but they seem like they're vastly inadequate for the number of SIV candidates that we have left behind. Can you talk a little bit about maybe that latest bill and what you guys are working on right now. Sure. Yeah. So one of the issues with the SIV program is that it was viewed when it was first passed in the legislature as a temporary program. You know, we're only going to fight one more year of this war and then we'll be done. And we did that recurringly year on year. Um, but what we've realized now is that this, you know, annual need to renew that legislation and say, oh, hey, we need one more year 
is wildly inadequate. And what happened this past year is that in the National Defense Authorization Act, where it's normally renewed without any fanfare, it's usually no problem at all. Um, we the, the legislative language is almost comically limited. It's just like cross out 2022 and replace it with 2023, cross out 2023 and replace it with 2024 and add some additional visas. This year, some members of the Senate decided to take that on and have it stripped from the NDAA before it was passed. And so, you know, we had um, a, a minority of senators who had important committee positions who pulled it out of the bill and said, we're not going to support the bill unless you pull this piece out. And this is some of the horse trading that goes on. It's the inside baseball of Congress. Um, but it's not something that's actually addressing the real problems that we face right now. And so we saw that in the NDAA as a real threat to the program because we're working on ways to fix the program, to make it better, to make it easier for those who fought alongside American troops to, to make their way to the U.S. and live in safety. And instead, we've got members of Congress and members specifically of the Senate who are trying to kill the program as it stands. Um, that was unconscionable to us. So we sent our advocacy team to Washington. We met with members both on the House side and on the Senate side, both sides of the aisle. And thankfully, due to the incredible leadership of Senator Shaheen, we were able to get the program renewed for an additional year and also an additional 4,000 visas allocated. Now, we talked about 100,000 people who are currently in the pipeline applying for those probably 50,000 eligible. Um, but right now, there are, before this bill was passed, there were only 15,000 or so visas left on the books, only 15,000 allocations. And those are for the principal applicants. They, they don't, you don't use up a visa allocation for each member of the family. It's just for that principal applicant, but it's still woefully inadequate. And so, you know, we were looking for 20,000 visas added to that, something that will actually get closer to the scope of the people who have done the service, they made the sacrifice, and they deserve the chance to come to the U.S. Uh, we found ourselves having to fight for the very life of that program, and so we're we're you know grateful that the Senate was able to pass a bill that did include this in the omnibus spending bill and did include four thousand additional visas. But there's so much more work to be done, um, and so when we look ahead to the next Congress, we're focused on a couple of things. Um, the the number one is recognizing that there are now threats to the SIV program. It needs to be made permanent. It needs to be an enduring program for people who serve in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also in other theaters of the global war on terror and potentially even in future conflicts where if American troops are telling you, hey, work with us and we'll have your back, there's a program on the books that proves that you'll have an opportunity to come to safety. And I've been doing some research on this and talking with people who have fought in places like Syria and Africa and Yemen and other places who have interpreters who are effectively stateless because they work for the US and then the US left. There's no program for those folks who are outside of Iraq and Afghanistan right now. And even the Iraq program is very limited. We hear from Iraqi interpreters on a daily basis saying, hey, we appreciate the work you're doing in Afghanistan, but why not us? And it's because Congress needs to fix this. And I know there's a lot of people that are still waiting on their SIV uh, approval, obviously, and a lot of them are taking advantage of the two-year humanitarian parole, mm -hmm. uh, which that time is obviously coming up pretty quick, right? Uh, this coming August will be two years. If nothing happens in Congress, what are the options for those people once August comes? You know, this is a good question. And there's been a lot of conversation about the Afghan Adjustment Act this year, which, you know, in, in addition to the SIV legislation I just talked about, Congress failed to do the right thing and failed to get that passed. Um, so for the folks who did make it here and are on humanitarian parole, that timeline runs out after two years, which is coming up soon. It's coming up this year for most of them, if not, you know, nearly all of them. Um, and 
what the worst case scenario is here is that they'd be deported back to Afghanistan. I cannot imagine a U.S. administration that's going to do that. I, I would like to hope that we as Americans have a better conscience than that, but that's the worst case scenario. More likely what happens is that all of these people who are here under humanitarian parole have to apply for asylum or other ways to stay in the country uh, and find ways you know, legally to stay here, or they effectively become um, you know, without immigration status to be in the U.S. Um, Congress failed to do that this past Congress. Um, I think there are other fixes that the executive could do to fix this issue. Um, things like, you know, temporary protected status or other, you know, immigration routes. Um, but fundamentally, that is an issue that someone in government is going to deal with or we're going to see a huge problem on our hands. Um, our focus has been less on the folks that made it here, uh, but it has been more focused on the SIV applicants who are still in Afghanistan because we see them as under the greatest sense of danger right now. Um, and that's why we're trying to make sure that the SIV program is fixed. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not really important and critical that we find a fix for those who are here under a status that's going to expire in the next year or so. Yeah, sure. And for anybody that's listening that doesn't know anything about the Afghan Adjustment Act, can you tell us a little bit about what it is and why it's needed? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, something on the order of 40,000 people came to the U.S. without a visa pathway. Um, because they were fortunate, um, because they were under incredible threat from the Taliban to make their way onto an aircraft or other ways to get to the U.S. during the withdrawal. Um, but for those who are not special immigrant visa eligible, they hadn't done that one year of faithful and valuable service, um, they got here without a long-term legal way to stay in the country. And so the, the primary focus of the Afghan Adjustment Act is on that population and to adjust their status so that it uh, allows them to have a pathway to a green card and permanent status in the U.S. It also did a few other things. The Afghan Adjustment Act was intended to create a task force that would force the interagency, so the State Department, Homeland Security, and these other agencies to work together on figuring out how we move forward with the Afghans that we've left behind um, who are still waiting for their visa programs and to better force that interagency process to occur. Um, and it extended SIV eligibility to some new categories, because um, currently, if you're an Afghan soldier who fought alongside U.S. troops but in uniform, you're not eligible for an SIV. Um, so this extended SIV eligibility to certain categories of Afghan military, including the female tactical platoons, the special mission wing, um, ANA pilots, and uh, ANA commandos. Um, so that was all part wrapped up in this bill uh, that had sort of different facets. Um, where we saw the limitation of the bill was that it didn't fix the special immigrant visa program. It didn't create, it didn't fix the bureaucratic mess that's making it so that the processing of a visa takes twice as long as it's legally required to. Um, and that's where we want to really see focus in the next Congress is on fixing that program and making sure it endures so we don't have to fight to renew it every single year. Incredible. Um, I'd like to revisit, you know, with the number of Afghan uh, SIV applicants who are still in Afghanistan and this, the very slow pace of evacuations that Paused with the World Cup, you know, what is your best guess about how long it might take to evacuate the, it sounds like 19,000 SIVs that are available to be used, and we've got all these 200,000, that doesn't include the, the family members, but how long do you think it's going to take to evacuate those people at the current rate? I mean, at the current pace, we're looking at 10 plus years, um, 10 plus years under the Taliban, where people are living month to month right now, barely able to survive. I mean, it's there's a huge humanitarian catastrophe in Afghanistan that we haven't talked about yet, uh, where people can't even find food. People can't, you know, there, there are no jobs for folks. Not to mention the fact that many of the people that 
we're hoping to evacuate are, are under threat from the Taliban. So imagine living in effectively a narco-terrorist state where the people there want to kill you. There's no real economy to speak of. Um, girls are not allowed to go to school. Um, there are you know, public executions and beatings in the streets. Um, and, we're, and the U.S. government is effectively saying, hey, just give us a decade. That, to me, is where we have to understand the reality of the situation. We have to understand those numbers. Because you can look and say, hey, the U.S. moved X number of people during the withdrawal and got them out. That's great. And that's important. But it's not enough. You can say, hey, the State Department and the U.S. government are, are doing things to get people out on a trickle. Um, but once again, it's not enough. And so when, when we really understand the scope and that it's going to be 10 plus years at this, at this point, you understand that there's this incredible need for urgency. The, the U.S. State Department didn't close down their um, Vietnam relocation office until the 90s. And I really hope that's not what we're up against here where we're going to see a 30-year process to aid those who fought alongside U.S. troops. Because I'll tell you that if you, if you talk to folks uh, who, who fought alongside the U.S. in Vietnam and then were sent to re-education camps and things like that, their experience was horrifying. And I would be willing to wager that the experience under the Taliban is going to be just as horrifying, if not worse, if we fail to get our allies out. Is there any uh, method that you know of that the State Department is using to prioritize different uh, SIV applicants as to maybe their level of threat, or are they just prioritizing people based on when they applied? What What is the, the process there? So right now, there are two things that sort of end up prioritizing your application. One is the, the level of service that you did to the U.S. government. Um, there are different tiers for a special immigrant visa, where if you're if you were an interpreter for a general officer, you're at the top. If you were a combat interpreter, you're number two. And then if you're, you know, the various types of contractors fall underneath that. So that's one way in which the State Department prioritizes. But it doesn't have any regard for current threat level um, or sort of, you know, where, you know, where your position in terms of your safety. The other part is, as you mentioned, how far along you are in the process, because they can't move folks who are you know, at the very early stages of a special immigrant visa um, until, we, you know, until they ascertain that their application is likely to be um, accepted. But one of the things we see is like a clear indicator here is the chief of mission approval process or often called COM approval. At that point, your application has been vetted and certified that you did the work that you say you did for the U.S. government. We've, you know, made you uh, give us an employer letter, an HR letter. Uh, we've gone through and verified those records. You've been checked against uh, security databases to make sure you're not a threat. What I've been told is that less than 1% of the people who reach COM approval are later rejected for cause. And so, you know, 99% of people who have chief of mission approval are eligible and are going to finish their, their visas. You know, and something like 5% don't complete it, often because they get lost in the bureaucracy, or perhaps they decide they don't want to leave their extended family behind because the, uh, the visa only applies to their immediate family. But if 99% of people who reach that stage are likely to be deemed eligible in the long run, in my mind, there's no reason why we couldn't give those folks categorical parole or some program that allows them to come to the U.S. and finish their visa in safety. Because right now we're wholly dependent on a lily pad country in Qatar, where the Qataris have done a lot to ensure that we have a place to process folks. Um, but that bottleneck was made clear with the World Cup, where for a soccer tournament, the flights from Afghanistan ceased. And so we either need to find expansive lily pads that actually is addressing the problem at the scale at which it currently exists, or the executive, the president, could sign a piece of paper tomorrow that said, hey, if you've got calm approval, 
then you can come to the U.S. and finish your visa here. And if you're in that less than 1%, we're going to have to figure something else out. Um, but for 99 point whatever percent of people who are going to get that visa approved, there's no reason we're making them languish behind enemy lines at the hands of the folks that we fought for the last 20 years. And for the people that are um, waiting on approval for SIV, is there any other documents that they're going to be required to have? Like, do they have to have a passport? Um, and are passport offices even open currently in Afghanistan? Yeah, you raise an important point, Michael. Right now, for the State Department to move anyone to Doha, where they're being processed, there's a Qatari requirement that they have a passport. Uh, the passport offices have been you know, off and on open in Afghanistan, but most recently have been closed, forcing people to either look for a black market solution or something like that. Moreover, if you were a prominent member of the former government or you fought alongside U.S. forces for 20 years, the last thing you want to do is march into a Taliban passport office and say, hey, here are my documents and here's my fee. Is it cool if I, you know, get out of the country? Um, because it provides, you know, a location where, you know, you're, you're forcing folks to go and present themselves to their, their mortal enemies. And so that's been another another holdup and a difficult one. And once again, we see that this entire process has been governed by uh, the bureaucratic decision making instead of what is actually morally right and doing right by the people who fought alongside us. Absolutely, it's a uh, very difficult work. Are you um, currently thinking about starting your MBA program up again, or how is that working for you? With I mean, you're so clearly passionate about this, and it's such a, a very pressing concern. Yeah, at a certain point, I'm going to go back to school, but I'm going to stay involved no matter what. Um, and right now I'm focused on really entering the next Congress and get, convincing our government to do the right thing by our Afghan allies. Uh, my own sort of career progression and you know grad school comes second to that. Um, but my focus right now is the legislation we have in the pipeline to fix the SIV program, to force the government to meet their own requirements for processing times, to expand the you know evacuation throughput pipeline, and then finally to make the SIV program permanent. And that's that's really my main focus at this point. So, um, you know, that's what we're working on now. And I'll tell you, we've got incredible allies in Congress. You know, Congressman Seth Moulton, who flew to Kabul during the NEO and was at HKIA, um, you know, was there. And I'll tell you, some of my friends in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, actually saw him there and thought, man, I can't believe a member of Congress has the courage to actually be here and face this with us. There's been a lot of, you know, criticism and, you know, politics thrown his way for that. but from what I heard from the Marines on the ground, they were very proud of the work he did. Um, Senator Shaheen in the Senate has long been an ally of the Special Immigrant Visa Program. He worked on it with Senator McCain years ago, and to this day continues to be the one who's fighting for our allies uh, you know, in the Senate. Um, not to mention many of the other vets. I mean, I met with staffers uh, from the Four Country Caucus, which is a, group, a bipartisan group of veterans uh, who all are striving to do the right thing, and resoundingly heard from staffers there that they want to find ways to fix this. And they're just as frustrated as many of we are, as many of us are, with how the process has played out, with the lack of information from the executive agencies, uh, and with the need to do more. So, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we have the right allies in Congress to get this done. Um, but now we just need to execute on that and, and hold our government accountable to do right by our allies. That's incredible. I wonder, just for the average listener who's listening right now, um, what can they do to follow and support No One Left Behind or to advocate for the allies that are still in need of our help? Sure, absolutely. I mean, first, I would say write to your member of Congress, you know, give them a call, call their office. That stuff matters. And when they hear from the American public, especially their constituents, that we care about this, that makes it a priority for them. So that's number one. 
And number two, I would say, you know, please check out the work that we do at No One Left Behind. Um, right now, we're working to fundraise for that Save a Life campaign to bring people to Pakistan and eventually to the U.S. And we can only do it through the incredible generosity of our donors. Um, so please consider that. You know, and, and above all else, you know, keep this in mind. Talk to your friends and family about it. I, I, I often remember when I got back from Iraq in 2016, I had been on a deployment there. We were helping the Iraqi army defeat ISIS in the Euphrates River Valley. And when I got back, my hometown gave me a plaque that said, welcome home from Afghanistan, which was not the country I had spent most of the last year in. And it, it reminds me that even really well-meaning folks who wanted to do something nice for a Marine coming home from a deployment um, don't even realize what's going on across the world. And that there's an incredible requirement for civic education. I don't think we'd be where we are today with Afghanistan if the American public truly understood what a withdrawal would actually mean and the human impact it would have. So when you read about Afghanistan, when you, when you listen to this podcast, send it to a friend. Um, you know, have a conversation about it around the dinner table, because I think at the end of the day, the American government, uh, sometimes slowly, sometimes in a very difficult manner, but the American government responds to what people care about. And so if this is on the forefront of people's minds to sort of do right uh, by those who fought alongside U.S. troops for the last 20 years, then we're going to see progress. And if we just all, you know, turn a blind eye to it because we've got other priorities and we just want to watch what's on, you know, whatever's on the news today, then these people are going to be forgotten and they're going to be left behind. And for the people that are still in Afghanistan uh, that feel like they could benefit from your services, what's the best way for them to find you guys? Go to our website at nooneleft.org, and there are forms you can fill out to request evacuation assistance. Um, you know, we we work very hard for those who come up as eligible uh, as far as they are along in their process to get them on flights and make sure that they're on their way out, um, despite all of the frustrations we've talked about over the course of this podcast. Um, but but I also want to say for you folks in Afghanistan, like, don't don't give up. Don't lose hope because as frustrating as what you're dealing with can be, and I and I deeply understand it, um, but as frustrating as it can be, there are folks like the three of us here and many of other volunteers, veterans, and others who are still fighting for you every single day here in the States. You might not always see it, um, but we're here working for you and we're doing everything we can. Well, Jeff, that was really incredible. Um, I can't thank you enough for being here to discuss all of your own work and then the amazing efforts that No One Left Behind has underway to assist our allies who I, I know sometimes feel that they have been forgotten. Um, we want to close today like we always will at the Afghanistan Project with uh, the voices of the people of Afghanistan. We want to make sure that their ordeals under uh, almost two decades of war and now the country's tumultuous return to Taliban rule are heard by listeners around the world. So today we have a letter from an SIV applicant whom we're calling Fawad to protect his identity. And Fawad has spent much of the last 16 months living in a tent with his family of four while working to find the materials that he needed to reapply for the SIV program and waiting for the State Department to process his application. So his, uh, his story is really important today after we've been discussing the SIV program. And these are his words. My name is Fawad. I am the married father of two children. I worked on behalf of the U.S. government as a logistics officer in Kabul and in various Afghan provinces between 2008 and 2010. I was responsible for arranging transport of personnel and materials to U.S. military projects throughout Afghanistan. I also worked as a security officer with Tundra Strategies from 2011 to 2013. I worked as an informer against suicide attackers in Kabul City, provided close protection for coalition VIPs, worked as a point man on convoy escort duty and road security details, and was a canine patrol leader and security manager. 
My wife and I had a happy life and we were hopeful and optimistic about having a brighter future after 2001 and the collapse of the Taliban regime. Unfortunately and unexpectedly, history is being repeated again. We are frustrated and disappointed due to the current situation unfolding in Afghanistan. Due to my work in support of the US military and ISAF, I've been receiving threats from the Taliban and ISIS. I have already had a horrific experience of being identified and arrested in the Takchi area of Ghazni province by the Taliban while traveling to Kabul from my village of Jagori. Luckily, I was able to run away. I decided to move my family to Kabul from Ghazni. At that time, Kabul was safer. Now it's the capital of the Taliban's brutal and anti-human actions against the people of Afghanistan. After moving, I received a threat letter from the Taliban. The Taliban classify anyone who worked in support of the US military or ISAF as a spy, the foreigner's slaves or infidels. Simply, they treat us as their enemies. In addition, I am from the Hazara Shia Muslim minority, which is another threat to my life and the life of my wife and innocent children. Our lives are at extremely high risk. I don't know what will happen to my kids if the Taliban behead me while they are watching, as they have done to Juma Khan, my friend who was beheaded one week after his wedding on October 18, 2021 at Takchi Tamki in Ghazni province because he refused to give the Taliban my address. Days before his death, I talked to Juma Khan. He asked me to run away because the Taliban had said if they captured me, they would behead me in front of my family. I changed my location and hid myself in Kabul. The Taliban found my address in Kabul, and many times they tried to arrest me in my home, but they could not. They opened fire on my dog and killed her to show me and my family what they would do to us if I didn't surrender. Soon I left my home and took my wife and kids to a location outside of the city. After I left, the Taliban used grenades on my home and took out my documents, photos, and computer. I received photos of the destruction of my house from my neighbors. I started living with my wife and my two kids in a plastic tent near the mountains and passed the first freezing winter of 2021 in Kabul without firewood or any other life facilities. During that time, my daughter had allergies. I was unable to take her to the doctor and she was very sick. My four-year-old son has been unable to walk properly now for the last year. His legs are getting weaker and he is suffering from thigh pain. I can't do anything for his treatment. I received a second and third threat letter from the Taliban at our area mosque on January 22nd and 25th, 2022. I found a place to live near Kabul city in a chicken farm on March 7th, 2022. But during the Taliban's door-to-door -door searches of the city, several Talibs came to the farm. Two days before the search, I paid 10,000 Afghani to the farm workers so they would not tell the Taliban about me. I was hidden in a barrel full of water for seven hours while the Taliban searched the area and the farm. On March 22nd, I received photos of my home, which had been fully destroyed. The Taliban had taken out the doors, windows, and equipment from inside. This fact continues to endanger me and my family. The Taliban are frequently visiting my neighbor's houses and our, our mosque asking about my location. We have no more life and future in Afghanistan. We want to start over, but I still await chief of mission approval for my SIV application after reapplying for an SIV in April 2022. Um, we're really grateful to Fawad for sharing that experience with us, which is just so uh, disheartening and for letting us share that with the world. For any listeners who want to have their story considered for a future episode, please send us a letter about what you've gone through in as much detail as you feel comfortable sharing and whether you'd like anonymity to protect your identity. And you can send that to our show email address, which is the Afghan Project Podcast at gmail.com. 
once again, we want to thank you, Jeff, for joining us, and we'd like to thank all our listeners for sharing their time and supporting the people of Afghanistan. Tasha Kaur, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you.